Hello, welcome to In Conversation With, a podcast for The Lancet, where we talk to authors of newly published work in The Lancet. I'm Gavin Cleaver, and it's February 11th, 2021. A new commission, out today in The Lancet, looks at the repercussions of the last four years on the health of the United States as both a uniquely difficult time for America and an acceleration of the problems the country was already facing. The commission is called Public Policy and Health in the Trump Era, and you can read it online now at thelancet.com for free, I'm very pleased to be joined by one of the authors of the commission, Mary Bassett, to find out more. Mary is director of the Centre for Health and Human Rights at Harvard University and has more than 30 years' experience in the field of public health. Mary, welcome. Thanks for having me. So this commission was set up in 2017 and to, to monitor the health outcomes of the Trump presidency. How did you feel about the following three years? Were they kind of better or worse than you imagined at the start of the commission? Well, of course, we didn't know uh, what would happen when we started, uh, although we anticipated that there would be bad health policies and general societal uh, impact of Trump would be uh, negative. Uh, But it turned out to be worse. I mean, the culmination was the January 6th events with people marauding in the halls of the capital of the United States. So... I mean, it it was stunning how much damage he and the people who surrounded and enabled him uh, were able to do in health and the environment, in the packing of the Supreme Court, who are likely to oppose uh, reproductive health rights. The the U.S. may lose uh, the right to um, women's right to choose to terminate a a pregnancy, for example, even now uh, because of who's now on the court. When reading the commission, it's kind of interesting to me and it sticks out uh, how often it mentions lots of the policies of the Trump era were kind of a continuation of 40 years of neoliberalism since the Reagan era. What are some of the most striking kind of historical hangovers in that sense, do you think? Well, I wouldn't describe them as hangovers. I would describe them as the report does, as continuation, that Trump was sort of an extreme exemplar, uh, but he continued a reliance on the market as the principal arbiter of social social decision-making and uh, accelerated privatization of public services. And all of this was part of the neoliberal model the first clue of its damage, of course, was the how the U.S. began to fall out of the pack in terms of its uh, life expectancy, uh, that it leveled in, in 19, uh, began leveling in 1980, and by 2014, uh, which preceded uh, Mr. Trump, uh, we began to see declines in the in U.S. life expectancy. This is very serious, and uh, it can't be attributed to... Donald Trump alone. The US, you know, has always had an issue with, with structural racism, of course. But um, to what extent was this kind of accelerated by the policies of the Trump era? And as well, what effect does structural racism have generally on the health of the nation? Uh, those are both big questions. Uh, yes. But yes, of course, um, the the US has uh, was founded uh, on uh, the genocidal campaigns against the indigenous people who the European settlers found here, uh, whose land was needed, and on the use of enslaved labor. Uh, This wasn't a footnote to U.S. history. It was a a principal um, component of it, and, and the commission you know, delves into that backward glance beginning 400 years ago before the U.S. even became a nation. 
as one of the consequences of this, there has never been a single year since vital statistics were collected in the United States when people classified as black haven't had shorter, sicker lives. Uh, that's not to say that there are many assets um, that have been brought to the United States by the black community, uh, but the cost of structural racism is written on our bodies in shorter, sicker lives. So this is not new, uh, but Mr. Trump uh, began to openly appeal to white supremacy and declared his own uh, you know, um, conviction that people of color were uh, low lives. He started out by calling Mexicans rapists and uh, responded to the protests against the uh, the casual snuffing out of George Floyd's life by an armed police officer, hand in his pocket as he put his knee on his neck, by uh, marshalling military might against peaceful protesters. So this was uh, a real acceleration and gave permission to white supremacist groups, um, some of whom are within the police departments or within the immigration um, uh, control authorities uh, to act on their own uh, white supremacist views. And uh, it was exemplified by someone, you know, running through the halls of the Capitol with a Confederate flag, the uh, emblem of the failed secessionist rebellion of the southern states. So, you know, that was part of it. There were also you know, more detailed actions. His um, continued attack on the Affordable Care Act, which had led to uh, more people having health insurance, uh, but uh, he wanted to, you know, have it, it was one of his platforms that he would get rid of it. He, he failed at that, but he did succeed in reducing the access to public insurance for low-income people, uh, accelerating the privatization of Medicare, which is a universal entitlement for people over the age of 65, uh, uh, deregulating further, um, although he promised to lower drug prices, uh, to continuing to deregulate the industry. Um, and all of these had a disproportionate impact on people of color. For example, among the states that declined to take up, at no cost to them, by the way, uh, the expansion of um, Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act, nine were southern states. And, and the majority, or at least half, of the U.S. black population is still resident in these states. So uh, these actions had a disproportionate damage. So he affected the intellectual climate, the political climate and, and took concrete actions that were, um, were damaging to people of color. Yes, absolutely. It's, um, it's quite shocking when you hear it listed back like that. I, apologies for asking yet another big question, but uh, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about the last 12 months as well. Of course, we've seen the COVID-19 pandemic spread uh, across the world. And in many countries, we've seen uh, an incredibly kind of unequal effect on outcomes across racial and income groups. And of course, the same has been true in, in, in America. What, what do you think these unequal outcomes tell us? Well, the, uh, the fact is that COVID-19 sort of pulled back the curtain on the impact of escalating inequalities that has been 
very extreme in the United States, but has been occurring also throughout other wealthy countries and uh, displayed the ways in which uh, these inequalities render all of us more vulnerable when you have a highly contagious virus that is uh, for, against which no one had immunity. Uh, so in the United States, of course, the racial ethnic disparities in who got infected, who got sick, who got hospitalized, and who died have been marked. Uh, let me. I, we were just looking at some data, for example, that in 2020, a 65-year-old woman who died of COVID uh, died at the same rate as a 53-year-old Latina woman or a 52-year-old uh, black woman or a 48-year-old indigenous woman. So the uh, rates of mortality were higher among black, Latin, uh, X, and indigenous people, uh, but they also died at younger ages. And this uh, almost certainly has, is related to the impact of low-wage essential work uh, with few workplace protections and the high cost of housing with resulting uh, high rates of residential crowding. And, you know, the uh, it's just cut a real swath uh, through communities of color. Life expectancy uh, is expected to decline on average for the United States, but uh, whites will lose less than a year, estimates project, and, and blacks uh, stand to lose uh, about a year of life, widening the black-white um, life expectancy ga gap by about 40%. And the Latinx population, which has protections of what people call the healthy immigrant effect, you know, the people who can um, manage to uproot their lives and move tend to be healthy people, uh, but the Latinx population um, is estimated to have lost two years of life, uh, greatly narrowing the relative advantage with respect to whites that they've had in the past. You know, these are um, not things that should be viewed as just problems for people of color. <laughs> this is a contagious virus, uh, and uh, it won't be safe for anyone uh, uh, as long as we have um, continued transmission. Uh, the continued transmission, of course, is also driving the adaptation of the virus uh, and to become a, you know, more contagious and potentially even more, more lethal. Uh, so con ongoing transmission um, affects the virus as well as the people who are infected, and it's dangerous for everyone. Yes, there's quite a disparity as well, isn't there, in uh, vaccination rates uh, among among racial groups? Yeah, that's, you know, not unexpected. The, there, there are several parts to it. There are, is the simple availability. Uh, there have been studies now to suggest that vaccination sites are more likely in white affluent areas. There's the, um, the fact that many vaccination access has uh, the main way that vaccines have been accessible is through web-based scheduling app applications. I spoke to somebody, uh, you know, who is, was lucky enough to have an assistant. She was entirely 
eligible, uh, but had an assistant spend the entire day trying to get her a an appointment. Now, uh, that's something that a working person who doesn't have much internet access simply can't do. Uh, and then uh, there is the problem of um, concerns about the vaccine um, and the distrust that communities of color may have um, for for government, uh, which has failed to protect them uh, in many ways. And uh, but right now, I'm mostly worried about access. Uh, it, it it simply has been. Um, not accessible to poor communities. The gaps are like two, threefold. It's it's very worrying. Yes, it's marked. It's marked over here in the UK as well. I mean, it's obviously uh, you have greater access problems in the US, but even in the UK, when we've had a kind of relatively efficient vaccine rollout, you're still seeing. Um, I think it's something like. If you're over eighty and you're black, you're half as likely to have been vaccinated as if you're white at the moment. And uh, I, you know, I think that there are real problems with uh, with mistrust. They're they're not just due to some psychological thing uh, among people of color. They're based on facts. There has been, you know, history of really um, uh, scientific mistreatment of people of color. And of course, the general problem of lack of dignified care to which everyone is entitled. But, um, you know, I I think um, dismissing these disparities as based on, um, you know, some kind of hostility of communities uh, without making it convenient to get the vaccine is inappropriate. Uh, we, we can talk about vaccine confidence, but our obligation is always to make getting vaccinated convenient. Yeah, absolutely. One thing that really struck me when I lived in the US was the kind of the extent to which these societies are car based, you know, how there's no public transport. And it really strikes me that, you know, if you don't have a car, <laughs> it must be incredibly difficult to actually even get yourself to a vaccination centre in the US in some places. Yeah, I mean, for example, the place that I, uh, you know, went to get tested was a drive-up place. And I was talking to a friend who lives in Los Angeles, which is currently experiencing a huge surge in COVID transmission. And they've also identified a California variant of the of the virus. And she told me that something under 20% of the Latinx population own cars. So, you know, having a car-based access where, you know, people drive up and get tested or get the vaccine administered through sitting in their car uh, is obviously uh, inequitable. And any first-come, first-serve strategy is always inequitable because people who can navigate a system are people who have more resources, uh, whether it's more know-how or more uh, material resources, um, they people who have more privilege are more likely to successfully nav- navigate uh, uh, any given system. Yes, I couldn't agree more. It's um, it, it, there's so many different aspects, isn't there? That all, all all feed back into that access question. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm I'm getting. I mean, I I think it's important to reassure people that this, these vaccines, which have now been administered to millions of people, the mRNA vaccines are safe and of course a num- that number 95% protection is fantastic um so that that's important but i really don't want communities to be blamed 
uh, for, you know, being stubborn or hostile when it remains so difficult to simply get access. Of course. So moving on to a slightly different topic, one thing that's struck me in the years of working at The Lancet is we've published lots of work on the kind of the myriad health effects of mass incarceration. And uh, especially the statistics in America have always been astounding in terms of the sheer number of people in jail, but also the knock on effects that that causes in society. And uh, of course, uh, over the last uh, over the last four years of the Trump era, we've not seen a slowdown at all in mass incarceration. And how, how does America kind of dig itself out of this problem going forwards? Well, uh, there are a couple of things to say about that. Of course, they're the facts that you've already mentioned, 2.2 million people incarcerated, the highest incarceration rate in the world, and disproportionately among um, minority groups, uh, particularly among African-Americans. And uh, these um, uh, congregate settings are, have been especially dangerous during the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, and this was a good opportunity to accelerate the release of people, people being held pretrial for nonviolent offenses, or people who are serving time, who, who don't represent a threat to the community. And I, I, I think it's fair to say that it, was, has been disappointing to see how few people have been decarcerated, as they say, um, uh, to protect them from COVID-19. Now, the broader question uh, is simply that uh, we have to change the sentencing laws and uh, stop locking people up for drug offenses and stop, uh, you know, treating drug use as a, as a crime and and start viewing it as a, as a problem for which other solutions are more appropriate. And stop taking such a punitive attitude towards uh, crime in general. You know, the sentences have not only have too many people have been sentenced, but too many people have been given sentences that were too long. Uh, so this is going to take uh, a real step towards criminal legal reform. Uh, there was one accomplishment, I think it was called the First Step Program uh, during the Trump administration, uh, but compared to the numbers uh, that have been incarcerated and the, there was a real escalation beginning in, in the 1970s in the United States. And the uh, decline in leveling has been minor compared to the incredible increase in incarcerated individuals over the last several decades. So whatever Trump did was nice, but it was certainly not what was needed to solve the problem of mass incarceration. So for many of the reasons you've laid out, uh, the, the, the Trump era has been harmful to, to the health of America. And it, it seems that, you know, this sense of kind of Trumpism is now quite a prominent feature of the Republican Party going forward. Uh, what do you think can be done to kind of tackle this, this Trumpism strain? Well, part of it is looking back not just for and 40 years, but 400 years to the founding of the United States and coming to terms with the, the history of the United States and the foundational um, importance of using enslaved labor and uh, and. Uh, grabbing land from the indigenous people. Uh, the end of slavery was not accompanied by any effort to position the newly emancipated population to um, 
to survive. Uh, the treaties with indigenous people ha have been disregarded repeatedly. And I personally uh, think that we have to come to uh, a reckoning with this. Uh, for the black population, it means thinking seriously about reparations, about compensation for over 250 years or nearly 250 years of uncompensated labor. And, you know, to uh, come to terms also with what was done to the indigenous population that was really the victim of genocide. It's estimated that something like 90% of its population was reduced by, eliminated by European contact. I, uh, so I think that there has to be a deep reckoning, uh, that this is not just a four-year, 40-year, but a 400-year-old uh, problem. And, and the commission recommends that there be compensation um, to the uh, populations that were enslaved and, uh, and had their land taken to Puerto Rico that was colonized. Additionally, of course, there are shorter-term things that should be done. You talked about mass incarceration. Uh, we've talked about um, the in indigenous population. The Indian Health Service is hugely underfunded. I mean, they get per head like half what's spent on Medicaid. Puerto Rico gets half of what's spent on Medicaid in the mainland. Uh, these kind of inequities uh, should be addressed. It's not adequate to provide a decent health service. Your, your question is, how are we going to convince the United States that it should abandon its embrace of white supremacy? And the many people, of course, Mr. Trump had many people who voted for him. And in fact, the actual number of people who voted for him, uh, although he was clearly defeated uh, convincingly, uh, the number of people who voted for him in, in the last election was higher than the number who voted for him the, the first time. Uh, so, I, you know, this doesn't augur well for the United States. Um, because uh, I would argue that, that the embrace of white supremacy has been damaging to everyone. Uh, the U.S., compared to its peer nations, has, has you know, uh, poor performance on any number of health indicators, uh, lower life expectancy. This affects everyone. Uh, and that, that's the, the challenge of political leadership to... Um, to, to win the, the narrative and uh, to argue that, you know, seeking to enshrine whites as the top of the racial hierarchy is a strategy that can no longer uh, be pursued to protect the well-being of all of us. So just finally then, the commission mentions, of course, how interesting it is that um, life expectancy has fallen back in the US while GDP has continued advancing, which is not something we've seen before in the statistics. What are your, what are your kind of um, hopes for the Biden presidency to get the health of the nation back on track? Well, I'm really optimistic. Uh, I mean, he began by, you know, wielding his pen, uh, you know, to the extent that he can. Um, and uh, I hope, you know, he continues to do that. We've rejoined the Paris Accords. We've rejoined the World Health Organization. Um, and he's um, taking numbers of steps to correct the truly um, vicious gutting of environmental protections. He's convened a task force to look at racial equity issues. 
He has a razor-thin majority uh, in the legislature, and I would say be bold, <laughs> use, use it. And, uh, and I think that all people will find that they benefit. Uh, the, you know, the, the people who Trump promised he would make life better for uh, were failed by him, uh, except for some sort of ideological boost that they got by being pumped up. Uh, but uh, materially, the U.S. faces real challenges and loss of jobs, the economic downturn, the fact that many more people, millions more, now lack health insurance due to the COVID pandemic, and the Biden administration is well poised to, to well positioned to address that. So I'm hopeful. And also the fact that we saw such a mobilization of civil society in protest of the George Floyd uh, murder and, um, and an argument that, that uh, has won over many people of all racial ethnic identities, uh, that the U.S. racial hierarchy is just too lethal and must end. Well, Dr. Bassett, it's been a pleasure speaking with you, and it's uh, wonderful to uh, strike such a positive note at the end. Huge thanks to Mary for taking the time to speak with me. You've been listening to In Conversation with, a podcast for The Lancet. You can subscribe to this podcast wherever you usually get your podcasts, and do check out our other In Conversation with podcasts for the specialty Lancet journals. Thank you for listening.